Welcome to That'll Preach. We've got an interview today with Dr. Ian Church from Hillsdale College. He's a colleague of Dr. Paul Riscala, my co-host, and uh, he's here to tell us all of Paul's dirty secrets. (laughs) So, Ian, what is something that his friends don't know about that uh, you can shed some light on? What is Paul like as a colleague? Well, he has he has uh, become a Michigander uh, surprisingly quickly. Uh, he's he's gone squirrel hunting, which is uh, something that usually people don't get to until oh, man. No, years no, in. no, no. <laughs> he shot a deer. That's how you uh, you gauge whether or not you're a Michigander is by just by the the number of animals you've shot at. <laughs> That's right. Now, is like Paul like the young, attractive bachelor philosopher kind of guy that you know all the people think is like super hip girls kind of have a crush that's what he tells us i just want some that's my understanding though (laughs) though my uh my awareness of social environments is is very limited okay (laughs) as a philosopher and a calvinist oh my gosh that's that's the double whammy of of social awkwardness being a philosopher and a calvinist it's just one of my favorite stories from pandemic times uh was just sort of watching I'd have all these students who would need to be contact traced and they'd attend classes via Zoom. And at one point, my intro level course had like half the students gone. They were all in isolation and and on Zoom. Um, But my upper division philosophy science class, uh, no one was being contact traced. They were all just fine. (laughs) I thought that was sort of curious. But then I realized that this this is because they're all philosophy majors. That's hilarious. (laughs) They're like, that's the greatest vaccination. That's the greatest social distancing, <laughs> having social ineptitude. <laughs> That's a great one. It's like, it's like the scientists study this one enclave of like 20 Calvinist philosophers in Michigan <laughs> and how they managed to survive not only COVID, but all major diseases. No That's contact with anyone. That's it's right. like a Babylon B article. Built to survive. That's right. That's right. Well, Ian, we're, we're grateful for you spending time with us and uh, that we get to pick your brain about various topics. Well, not various topics, but uh, some of the research that you're doing. And uh, Paul, you know, when we were talking about people we could interview, you were at the top of the list. Uh, and uh, he said that you were, some of the stuff that you're studying and researching and looking into. So Paul, this was your idea. Yep. Ian is, uh, Ian's doing some cutting edge work that I have the privilege of working on with him. And so it's been fun. And, uh, Brian, you're the only one who's on the outside of this little trio right here. You have no idea what we're going to say. Okay. I, I, right. So this is, my questions are going to be very genuine and at various points are going to be like, please talk to me like I'm five years old. That's right. So, but, uh, who wants to intro the topic? Do you want to? Sure. Yeah. So Ian, I'll, um, I'll just give a general intro and then you could say more specifically, um, there's a, a big Templeton project that uh, Dr. Church is running where he's looking at uh, topics in philosophy of religion. So think about the existence of God, problem of evil, how to reconcile suffering with the existence of God and applying uh, psychological methods to exploring how people think about these issues. Um, so, so it's, it's an attempt to bring together cross-cultural studies, the tools of psychology to questions that have largely just been, uh, addressed from the armchair, um, from, you know, the book of Job, uh, David Hume, people have 
talked about and wrestled with evil and God. And so now uh, Ian's trying to tackle some of these questions from an empirical perspective and see, you know, do people really have intuitions that evil is a problem for God or not? Um, and so Ian is, uh, is, is what, what, what led you to that, um, to that project? Yeah. So this is a project that's been, uh, several years, uh, coming, um, uh, part of it came about when I first met, um, my friend and, and mentor, uh, Justin Barrett. Uh, so I, I was raised by psychologists. I like to say, uh, both my parents, um, got their PhDs in psychology, and I still remember them coming home with with games uh, for me to play uh, in scare quotes, right? Games. Um, and so, uh, you know, I actually really disliked psychology and some of the cognitive tools that we're going to be talking about favorably today. Uh, I disliked psychology for quite some time, uh, but lo and behold, my very first job uh, working in in higher ed was working with Justin Barrett at the Fuller Graduate School of Psychology on the the Science of Intellectual Humility project. And uh, I quickly, I mean, to be honest, fell in love with uh, psychology and cognitive science, um, the ways that philosophy can speak into those fields, uh, but also how philosophy uh, could be informed and shaped by um, those, those disciplines as well. And so uh, at that point, Justin and I started talking about um, some of the ways that empirical methods and tools might be applied to various topics within philosophy of religion. And um, our, our main focus more recently has been on the problem of evil. Uh, but the, the bigger project is, is essentially just to take the tools and resources of psychology, cognitive science, and, and bring them to bear on lots of issues uh, within philosophy of religion more broadly. Um, and, and one of the goals here, um, at least personally, is to try to better understand uh, the cognitive genesis of our beliefs, of our religious beliefs. Um, why do we believe what we believe? And um, one of the things I'm particularly interested in is is what could, what would it take to change our minds about our beliefs? Right. Uh, I, I find that to be a a very uh, important question to consider. It's something. It's a question I ask my students very frequently, um, uh, because I think it can be a very revealing question in terms of uh, uh, what is under what is ultimately underwriting our our beliefs, right? So um, say we're, we're talking about euthanasia. Well, some students might approach that topic with a, a whole host of things that they already take themselves to know, right? They, there's all sorts of things that they take themselves to be uh, given when it comes to these kinds of issues. And they might think that they know that euthanasia is always and forever morally impermissible. Uh, and it's just a matter of figuring out you know, uh, finding the right kind of argument to, to prove that point uh, or uh, dis disproving arguments to the contrary. But they already know what they want to say. It's just a matter of sort of getting the evidence to get them there, uh, getting the arguments to get them there. Uh, but if we can reflect on, OK, why do you believe that? Why do you have that belief and what could change your mind about that? Well, that can be revealing in terms of, you know, what kinds of evidence is there anything that could change your minds, right? Is this based on observations? Is it based on an argument? Is this based on uh, any sort of um, empirical understanding of the world? Or, or is it based on something else entirely? We need to try to get clear on what is underwriting our beliefs uh, so that we can be more sensitive to where we might be blind to evidence um, uh, and new information. So, so I feel like so, it's rambled a bit. No, 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 that's good. So, so basically... 
you're trying to bring together philosophy and psychology. And, and I guess one, one thing that would be really interesting for our listeners is to, to hear some of the insights and some of the, the evidence that the project has found regarding the problem of evil. So maybe you could just expand a little bit. What is the problem of evil? What should theists or Christians be worried about it? And what are some of the founding findings that you found um, about uh, how we should think about evil and the existence of God and the relationship between the two? Sure. So, I mean, there's there's lots of different variations of the problem of evil. A lot of our, our research has uh, focused on William Rowe's um, seminal 1979 formulation of the problem of evil. Uh, and it's a, a really nice argument and, and pretty eloquent, uh, easy to communicate as well. Uh, so the basic idea here is that uh, if there is a God traditionally conceived, then we shouldn't see pointless suffering in the world. Right. right. Okay. But we do seemingly see pointless suffering in the world. Therefore, there's no gods. Okay. Fine. Now, Roe, he wants to take that first premise, right? If there's a God, then there won't be pointless suffering to be rel- relatively uncontroversial, right? Uh, that theists and atheists are, are both going to agree that, um, that if there's a God traditionally conceived, then there really shouldn't be genuinely pointless suffering in the final analysis, right? Um, and so he wants to sort of take that as a given, and I'm willing to, to grant him that. Uh, everything then hangs on that, that second premise, right? Is there really pointless suffering in the world? Because if, if that premise is true, well, then we are forced to accept that conclusion. It's a valid argument. If the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true, right? So everything is hanging on the truth of that second premise, right? So why should we think that there are instances of pointless suffering in the world? Well, Roe gives us a, a, a couple sentence long vignette uh, just to sort of prime our intuitions uh, to help us see um, a potential case of pointless suffering, right? So he imagines um, a lightning striking a dead tree in a, fo- in a forest, uh, starting a fire, uh, the fire gets out of control, and a, a fawn is trapped in that fire, badly burned, suffers for several days before eventually dying. The end. It's a sad story. Um, and so, um, Roe invites us to consider that story and to say, well, look, this, this seems like an instance of pointless suffering, right? Um, we consider this case, and it seems like an instance of pointless suffering. And insofar as it seems pointless to us, then, well, that's some evidence for thinking that it is pointless, right? And if we have some evidence for thinking that it is pointless, then that's some evidence against theism, given his argument. Right, that's sort of the the, the the nutshell of how this thing's going to uh, work. So, so, so basically, if if there are examples like that fawn suffering case in the world, then that's evidence of pointless suffering, and pointless suffering is not the sort of thing we would expect in a world where there's a good God. So that's evidence against theism or for atheism, something like that. That's right. And so he he can't, he's not going to say that it's, it is in fact pointless suffering, right? He can't really claim that. Uh, for all we know, there is some greater good that God is working uh, through the death of this fawn, the suffering of this fawn. Um, but uh, what he wants to say is that insofar as it seems pointless to us, then that's some evidence for thinking that it is pointless, even if it's fallible evidence, it's some evidence. And insofar as we have some evidence for thinking that it's pointless, and that's some evidence against theism, given the argument. Right. So he's not, he's not entirely closing the door to theism, but he's giving us an argument, an evidential argument uh, from evil, 
for atheism. Okay, so we have so we have an argument that gives uh, some reason for theists to be maybe cautious or concerned about. Well, if if it turns out that some things seem like pointless suffering, then we've got some reason to reconsider theism, or you know maybe we've got to chalk down a point maybe in favor of atheism. Um, but so your your project, uh, what uh, what sorts of questions were you asking, and what kinds of findings did you uh, did you find? Uh, so I mean, there are a, a ver- variety of empirical questions we might ask about Rose arguments, right? Um, we might wonder if it is uh, significant that we're talking about a fawn, right? Uh, it, is is it that uh, we're, we're talking about Bambi here, right? This is a, a notoriously cute animal. Um, might it be the case that the suffering seems particularly pointless when it's the suffering of a very cute, disnified animal? <laughs> Whereas if we were talking about a rattlesnake being trapped in a forest fire, maybe we wouldn't have that intuition at all, right? Maybe okay. we would just say, good, right? That's one less rattlesnake in the world. <laughs> um, well, you know, so that, that's that's an empirical question. Maybe maybe if we changed, gave someone the same um, thought experiment, the, th- the same vignette, uh, but changed the animal, maybe that would change their perception of the, the suffering. Right. So we think because it's cute, it's more problematic. But if it's an ugly animal, we just say, well, we don't care. <laughs> that's right. Well, and, and it'd be revealing if we found that the cuteness of the animal had an impact on uh, our perceptions of suffering. Well, then that might tell us something about the cognitive genesis of our belief, right? If our if our belief is grounded mainly in cuteness potentially, right, or if cuteness is playing an important role in our judgments concerning suffering, well, that that may give us a reason to at least be a, a little cautious about the evidential weight that we want to assign to our assessment of the pointlessness of the fawn suffering, right? Okay, so that's we might wonder if the, the type of animal is playing a role here. Um, we might also wonder uh, if everybody's going to have the same sort of impression of the fawn, right? Uh, so this is a project within experimental philosophy, and one of the one of the first things the experimental philosophers tried to do is is to see if people's intuitions uh, regarding you know, sort of central cases within philosophy, thought experiments. Uh, are shared across various demographics because it was pretty common for philosophers to say, well, in these kinds of cases, it's our intuition that such and such is the case. Mm-hmm. Well, what experimental philosophers want to know is, well, well, whose intuition is this really? Is it everybody's intuition or is it just sort of the intuitions of admittedly bizarre analytic philosophers, right? Um, right, with no social so it, it, aptitude. <laughs> that's right, right? Because we might not have any reason to prefer the intuitions of bizarre analytic philosophers over the general population, right? <laughs> maybe in some cases we do, but maybe, you know, that's a conversation that we, we need to have. Uh, we can't just take it as a given that the intuitions of analytic philosophers are are the best, right? Okay, so, you know, there's the question about, uh, cu- uh, about the cuteness question about... Uh, uh, is that intuition about the fawn and uh, its pointlessness of its suffering? Is that shared across various demographics? And another question we might ask here is, um, well, is does the target example of suffering, like the suffering of this fawn, seem pointless merely because it is contextless? Mm. Okay. So uh, importantly, uh, when Roe gives this, this vignette, it's, it's only two sentences long. Um, and then we're asked to reflect on what, what the point of that suffering could be. And it's, it seems to me like a, a natural response to say was, well, 
of course, there's not going to seem there's it doesn't seem like there's a point because we're robbed of any chance to find one. Right. Uh, points are found in context, and so if we are talking about a bit of suffering that's devoid of context, then of of course that's going to seem uh, pointless, right? right. Uh, and so maybe if we were to give people the same two sentence vignette but provide a little bit more background information about when and why forest fires occur and and so on and so forth, then maybe that would drastically decrease the perception of of pointlessness. Right. Okay. So it could be, so you had sort of three different uh, hypotheses or questions. One about whether is what, whether, whether an animal is cute, uh, does that motivate or generate our intuition or feeling that this is pointless? Um, Another one, do weird philosophers think about suffering and pointlessness in the same way that other normal people do? And lastly, does adding context to these little stories affect whether or not we see them or interpret them as pointless? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And what, what, uh, what findings, what did you find? Yeah. So, uh, we're still sort of sifting through the data and, and trying to figure out what lessons we want to, uh, uh, draw from it. Uh, but uh, some uh, th- some of the initial uh, findings I think are are pretty exciting. Um, we found that uh, so what we did is that we ran uh, the vignette with uh, three different types of animals, right? We 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 won with the fawn, um, and then we tried to pick two other animals um, that uh, were not nearly as um, classic cute, right? Disneyfied cute, but nevertheless had a high capacity for suffering. We would, we didn't want to substitute. The fawn for like a beetle because we might think that well maybe that's not going to be as pointless because a beetle isn't as able to suffer as as a fawn right right, right. so we, we want to be able to pick an animal that's uh, at least intuitively approximately we might think has a, a similar capacity for suffering as a fawn and so we went with a a vulture and a boar uh and we tried it uh with just the vignettes so just the words and we also tried it with a corresponding picture of the animals, trying to amplify the cuteness of the fawn. And I did quite a bit of searching online, trying to find the least flattering picture of a boar I could. <laughs> right, in uh, the least flattering picture of a uh, uh, a vulture that I could. Right, trying to really ramp up just how uncute those animals are. Right, right. and so we ran, you know. Um, all these by our participants uh, to see if um, the the animal type or the picture had any effect on the perceptions of pointlessness. And uh, it didn't seemingly, right? Okay. Um, our initial finding was that it didn't have a significant impact on people's judgments concerning pointlessness. And I, I was deeply puzzled by that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and I want to do some follow-up research uh, going on those along those lines. This has become sort of a weird obsession of mine. Uh, trying to figure out what 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 happened there, but anyway, uh, didn't find anything when it comes to the cuteness hypothesis. Okay, we did we did find significant variation across various demographics. Um, hmm. Now we uh, we expected um, men to report uh, higher levels of agreement with Roe than women, uh, primarily because men are more likely to be atheists than women. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, and but we didn't find that. We actually found that women were more likely to agree with um, Roe than men, though both disagreed with Roe on average. So that means that women were more likely to see the fawn suffering as pointless. So they're more likely to 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 see that as evidence of pointlessness. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And now again, on average, both of them are disagreeing with Roe, 
Um, but uh, nevertheless, there is a significant difference between men and women. Right, right. Um, and uh, we found uh, significant differences across um, uh, different ethnicities. Uh, we found um, significant differences across education um, uh, level. We, we thought that um, with increases in education, then someone would be more likely to agree with Roe. Again, that's because uh, various studies have found that uh, increasing someone's level of education corresponds with um, uh, a greater likelihood to be an atheist or an agnostic. So we thought yeah. that would probably be doing a lot of work for them. Um, and so uh, we thought that as people would increase their education, they'd be more likely to agree with Roe. But we found the exact opposite. It was only it was the people who were least educated who agreed with Roe more uh, the most. And then as people were reported to having more and more degrees, bachelor's, master's, so on and so forth, um, then their agreement with Roe decreased uh, significantly. What was the ethnicity finding? Uh, ethnicity finding. Uh, so I don't have it all right in front of me, uh, but there was uh, significant differences between um, uh, participants who were white and participants who were black. Uh, uh, there was a significant difference between uh, both of them and uh, uh Asian participants, most of them were coming from India. Um, and um, we had um, a significant difference between all those and, uh, uh, and, and uh, Latin American participants uh, right. as well. Brazil, yeah. Who was the most likely to agree with Roe? By ethnicity, I think, if I remember correctly, I think it was uh, white participants, yeah. but still on average disagreeing with Roe, right? So what are the most remarkable? Oh, d d yeah, uh, sorry. The white Participants were the most likely to disagree with Rose's conclusion. Oh, the, mo so the most likely to disagree were actually the uh, Asian participants. So, so, the, so the, there was there was disagreement on the whole, but the most profound disagreement was Asian participants. That's correct. Yes, and so one of the sort of striking findings was just how much disagreement there was with Roe. And I, I don't want to put too much weight on that because we're trying to figure out a way of measuring agreement with Roe, uh, and we don't need to get, get into the weeds uh, about that right now, but. Um, you know, the, the, it, on average, there was very little agreement with Roe. That was a, a sort of uh, a, a noticeable uh, uh, result that we, we saw here. Uh, we also saw, um, I mean, this is perhaps le least su less surprising uh, that um, uh, you know, one's religion has um, a significant impact on whether or not you thought the suffering was pointless. Um, uh, Hindus and Protestants had uh, really, really disagreed. Sorry, Hindus and Catholics really, really disagreed with Roe. Um, they didn't see the suffering as pointless. Uh, uh, mainline Protestants were almost agreeing with Roe, uh, but they were still on average slightly disagreeing with Roe. Atheists and agnostics uh, very much agreed with Roe. Hmm. Um, nationality saw significant differences between, so the three nationalities um, that we could, we had enough participants uh, uh, reporting from that we could say something significant about it uh, was uh, America, India, and Brazil. Um, and both Americans and Indians on average uh, disagreed with um, uh, Roe um, with significant difference between both of them as well, but they both were disagreeing with Roe on average. Um, and Makes you Brazilians what's going on in Brazil. <laughs> yeah. That Brazilians on average do agree with Roe. Right. So I, yeah, as you say, I, I don't know what's going on in Brazil, uh, that's <laughs> making them, uh, more atheistic here, uh, or more sort of inclined to see that the suffering is pointless, but nevertheless, you know, that's, that's what we saw. So we did see this, this variation in, in intuitions regarding these cases. Um, 
And, you know, so that, that at least raises questions about what is fundamentally um, underwriting our perceptions of suffering, right? We don't, it's, it's, it's all very, very exploratory research. Um, and we can't say too much, you know, definitively about this just yet, but this, this variation in intuitions does raise questions that we need to chase down with, with follow-up research about, you know, are, are our perceptions of suffering more guided by our, our upbringing, our broader sort of cultural context, our social context, uh, then Roe maybe would want us to, would maybe then more so than we would have assumed otherwise, right? We we might have hoped that our our judgments uh, about the Fawn case would be based off of sort of cool rational thinking, uh, or or um, um, you know a, a a sober assessment of of the evidence, but. Uh, maybe it, it, there's a lot more uh, complicated of a story that needs to be told about why people have the perceptions they do. And uh, subsequently, do we have any reason to prefer some people's intuitions over over others? Right. So this is sort of raising some of those questions that we're hoping to sort of explore further in, in follow-up research. Um, and then finally, there's the issue of context. Um, so the context question, uh, we found that there was a significant uh, a, a, a drop in the, the appearance of pointlessness. Um, when you gave people a little bit of context, um, we, we have we came up with a, a you know a um, a blurb about forest fires, when and why they occur, um, uh, their function within a sort of ecosystem, typically da 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 da, um, and when after people read that background background information, they re- received this exact same vignette, and their perception of the pointlessness dropped uh, markedly. Uh, now there's you know again. Follow-up research needs to be done to try to figure out what's going on there. Uh, I'm inclined to say um, that maybe that's just because points are found in the suffering, but there's other explanations that could be um, uh, brought to bear to this finding as well. Uh, maybe, um, maybe the the story uh, that we are giving people uh, nudge them in a particular kind of direction to see purpose, even when it's maybe not there, uh, or maybe. Um, giving people background information is just going to swamp their perception of the suffering such that they lose that sort of laser focus on the, on the suffering. And, and uh, because maybe that's what's actually causing the the decrease in the perception of suffer of perception of pointlessness. We don't know. We're going to be, we're designing some studies uh, right now um, to do some follow-up research um, to suss out what's going on there. There's a lot of background things happening that make a framework for how you would interpret, you know, the, the case with the fawn dying in a forest fire and all that stuff. And it, and like you were saying, it's not so much the cool hard facts, but there's an interpretive grid over that. And so maybe even people who already are committed in some way to atheism or are already kind of very skeptical of religious claims would look at that already predisposed to see pointlessness even without, um, or, or, or maybe they're, they're going already in with, with, with sort of a bias. But I, I can often, I think in like atheist literature or people who are agnostic, there is a sort of bravery associated with being able to look at that kind of pointless suffering and say, that's what life is. You know, <laughs> and so I wonder if there's some kind of even motivation, whereas I think if you're religious, you really don't want to believe the world is like that. 
And so you're more likely to seek out other ways or even to suspend judgment and say, I don't know what the purpose would be. I just don't think I can go with you and say it's pointless. Um, maybe even because I have a commitment to God, to a good God. So that is not even a, a plausible way I can view this particular scenario. Yeah. So, uh, Roe, so Roe's paper, um, it's called the problem of evil and some varieties of atheism. It's, it's a fantastic paper, uh, worth reading. Um, but he, he puts forward a, 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 an option for what he calls friendly atheism. Uh, and it, it kind of goes along those lines because he's, he's aware that, um, this kind of argument might be flipped around depending on what sort of sort of prior assumptions or experiences you might've had. Right. So, um, uh, the, the kind of thing you might hear at, um, uh, nerdy philosophy cocktail parties would be that one man's <laughs> modus ponens is another man's modus tollens. Right. So I've been saying that for years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So the, the basic idea here is that, so um, these, this has to do with the argument forms, right? So Rose argument is uh, that, look, if there's a God, then there won't be pointless suffering. Uh, there, it looks like there's pointless suffering, but therefore it looks like there's no God. Well, he's perfectly aware that that argument can be flipped around and just run it like this. Well, if there's a God, there won't be pointless suffering. I know there's a God. Therefore, I know that suffering is not going to be pointless. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The modus, Rose argument is modus tollens. We're flipping that around and making it a modus ponens argument form, right? For those of you who are paying attention to logic forms. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, uh, he's aware of that, that switch that could be, you know, take place. Um, and, um, and so we're just sort of trying to, in some ways, trying to suss out a bit further, what exactly is going to be going on in terms of background information, uh, and, and that, uh, that's, uh, informing, uh, our judgments about these cases. And it's not just the atheists who have this sort of background framing all of us have background framing that we're bringing into our assessment of, of the world. And then, yeah. but one of the follow-up questions that we need to ask is, do we have any reason to prefer one person's framing over another. Um, mm. And if we don't, right, if we don't have any reason to prefer one person's framing over another, then that raises some serious questions about whether or not um, our intuitions about these kinds of cases should be theory guiding, uh, if we should take them to be providing the level of evidential support that Roe seems to be taking them to provide. Right. Maybe they're not as maybe just maybe that the, the suffering of the fawn uh, seeming pointless to us doesn't carry the kind of evidential weight that we might have previously assumed. So just because we have an immediate reaction to that story or an immediate kind of gut. OK, I don't I don't think this is this or that. That initial reaction is formed by our pre or, or, or the commitments we've already made. And just because we have a strong immediate reaction doesn't mean that that is necessarily a good guide for assessing the actual situation. Yeah, that's right. So, we, so, so sometimes our, our intuitions about suffering, about um, evil in the world uh, can be um, really, really unreliable, right? Um, and, and fragile. Uh, and here's, I mean, here's the example I like to give um, along these lines, right? So I ended up watching a lot of nature documentaries as a kid, um, and um, and I can remember, you know, realizing that, you know, people could be filming these things at the same time, but depending on what angle you had, 
you might walk away from that documentary with radically different interpretations of the of the events, right? So, for example, uh, let's say we're watching a documentary about the American bison, and it's calving season, and the music is jolly, and you see these cute little calves are just learning how to walk, and they're so wobbly, but they're so cute. <laughs> but then, and then they're all caught in the fire. <laughs> well, then, then the music turns. The music turns, and and something ominous is happening, and then the wolves and, and, oh no, they they're out to kill the calves. They can't run properly and uh, they get one. And, and we want to cry out to the heavens that this is an unjust world. This is awful. This is a horrendous <laughs> thing that this occurred. Right. So, and, we, and we feel that, right. We feel that often. Okay. But then, you know, you can watch a documentary the next day and it's a documentary about uh, the wolves and how they've been reintroduced to into Yellowstone Right. And they've got puppies and they're so great. And look how cute those puppies are. And boy, they're so hungry. They haven't had a kill in a long time. <laughs> and they're like, hooray, they're killing the bison. This is great. <laughs> right. So you're, you're, our, if, we, if we can become aware of what is underwriting our impressions of the suffering uh, of the evil, whatever the case might be, we might find that the cognitive mechanisms that are underwriting it might not be as reliable, as stable as we might have hoped. Uh, and if that's the case, then we might worry at least that's that's not good grounding for philosophy for philosophy for philosophizing well could that be a good way to just say we should suspend our uh, immediate hot takes or judgments on a particular situation you know like i think if we can't trust our immediate intuitions or maybe it, it's it's showing that we should be skeptical about Maybe our snap judgments on certain situations. Yeah, and that could be. I mean, one of the one of the dangers here is that you know we rely on our snap judgments all the time. The fact that I'm talking to other agents and not a recording, right, is is you know it's now been brought to the the forefront of our cognition. But that was sort of operating in the background for a while, and so I'm pretty happy taking that you know, taking that snap judge, judgment and just running with it uh, and not being uh, too suspicious of it, um, and so. We might need to try to make a distinction between, you know, what kinds of snap judgments, where they're coming from, uh, and are the, is the cognitive genesis of our um, intuitions of our judgments? Does it have a a reliable pedigree, or does it uh, is it coming from a a place that is known to be um, more varied, uh, less objective, so on and so forth? Right? Helen de Cruz has a, a 2015 article uh, called where do philosophical intuitions come where philosophical intuitions come from that I think is really helpful in sort of exploring some of these these issues so so maybe one thing to take away from this is with when we talk about things like pointlessness when we talk about evil and suffering um, this body of research all of the stuff we've been talking about is not supposed to make a skeptical, of our ability to recognize good and evil in the world, right? This is not like we're not supposed to come away from this thinking the Holocaust, you know, maybe wasn't actually evil, right? Like that—that that would be the wrong. Um, but practically, I guess, what what sort of lesson should we draw about um, our epistemic situation, or I guess the kinds of things that we can know, or maybe we should be a little bit more humble. So. Maybe, maybe could you, could you give us a little bit of a, a practical takeaway? Where should we begin to be a bit less confident or I'm asking the philosopher to be practical here. So I know. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's a very, very good question. Um, and, and I think we want to be careful here, right? Um, 
because at some level, like what we want to take away from this just is that these types of formal arguments uh, might be underwritten by intuitions that may or may not be widely shared, right? We have to be careful and, and, and not, um, we shouldn't take it for granted that our intuitions about these kinds of cases are going to be everybody's intuitions, right? right. We, there is a sort of perspective that we're bringing to our assessment of these kinds of arguments. Right. Okay. Um, what I absolutely would not uh, say though, is that there's sort of going to be a significant um, sort of pastoral takeaway hmm. from this. Right. Yeah. Um, so if stuff, someone is uh, grieving, right. Someone died in their life and they're grieving. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea to go up to him and say, Hey, you know what? Your perception of the suffering being pointless, it might just oh be gosh. a product of your own framing. And so if you just change your perspective, uh, then that's going to be different. That's not the way to make friends, right? That's it's not worse a good than way. doing Romans 828. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so that's that's not uh, you know, a a a a good takeaway from this. But I, I do think we can take away um from this this research that our intuitions about these particular arguments, these formalized arguments might not be underwritten by intuitions that are going to be broadly shared. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a great point and yeah, we don't we don't want to over apply or generalize or or take more out of this than what the evidence suggests, but but yeah, I guess this really small lesson that when we do philosophical argumentation, the kinds of intuitions that we rely on, um we should, you know, be a little bit temper our confidence in them. Uh, if we don't see them widely shared, or if there hasn't been sort of empirical work about, you know, do Asians and Western peoples think the same about pointlessness of suffering or, um, yeah, so it, it really does emphasize our social situatedness and our being embodied and culturally conditioned. And, um, and I think, I think that's, that's a, that's a huge lesson. Is there any leaning towards why one set of frameworks is better than like you that was one of the things you're like okay so we have these this background noise that kind of primes the pump for how we're going to determine whether certain moments of suffering are pointless or not pointless and then you were saying it's not so clear if we can determine which of these sets of preconditions is more accurate to the truth yeah, so I, I don't have a strong view on, you know, if we have any reason to prefer um, some people's perceptions over over others uh, on these types of cases. I mean, one thing that's that's maybe worth uh, talking about that might be relevant here is that we also ask people uh, how frequently that how frequently they hunt or butcher animals. Huh. Right. Um, and uh, the, the expectation would was that uh, as people, the more frequently someone hunted or butchered animals, um, they would be less likely to see the suffering as pointless because they're more comfortable with animal suffering, right? They're more familiar with it. It's not abstract. It's, it's something that they're, they're, uh, they're familiar with. And um, as we're talking about with Paul's hunting, I, I imagine he feels nothing when he hears about the suffering in the farm. <laughs> he got, he got hungry. He started foaming in the mouth. It was very disturbing. <laughs> Sharpening my so, knives over here. <laughs> it, but, but, but really, right. I mean, if someone, if someone, um, uh, only ever encounters meat when it is sort of clean and wrapped in plastic, 
then that's going to be that might really change how you view the suffering of of animals uh, than if someone is you know more used to and comfortable with looking an animal in the eye before they kill it, right? Um, and and so, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, we might think, I mean, do we have any reason to prefer the the hunter the hunter or the butcherers? intuitions over the non-hunters and non-butcherers i mean i i'm inclined to think maybe but there's an argument you know that's an argument that needs to be made we can't just take that for granted so in the case of somebody who's already like i'm a christian and then are you okay to just be like on the one hand saying that's going to inform the way that i view moments of suffering um that's cool is that okay is that just to, is that something that you start going in to every suffering thing going, I know what it can't be. I know it can't be pointless. Um, or should you be like, actually, it could be pointless and I need to watch my Christian bias and maybe, you know, give up on the whole thing if, if it doesn't seem to hold water. Yeah, I, I think we need to go into it understanding that we're all coming to these conversations with our own framing. Uh, Christians, atheists, whatever, we're all coming at this with our own, our own framing, our own cultural, you know, uh, uh, context that's informing our, our judgments and perceptions of the world. Um, so it's not a matter of just not doing that. I don't think that's in the cards. We, we can't right. do that. We can't, you know, get to that sort of the way, you know, ob- observing the world as it is divorced from any sort of interpretive lens. Um, but I think we can be aware that we have these kinds of lenses. Um, and I think it's really important to try to dialogue with other people, even people who don't agree with us, to try to help uh, see how they're observing things and to be aware of how our frames might be limited. And we need to try to um, uh, talk to other people to just try to see um, how sensitive to the evidence our framing might be, right? So if I'm never going to see suffering as pointless, is there any type of suffering that ever could be seen as pointless to me, right? Is there any way that the world could be that I would say, oh, well, that's pointless suffering, right? And, and maybe not, right? Maybe I just have this lens in place that if there's suffering, there's God's going to have a point, come what may. Right? Maybe, right? Fine. Uh, but that's, we need to be aware of, of that, that just how strong that lens is and um, how we might be potentially blind to some evidence there. If sometimes suffering just does seem pointless to us, even as Christians, right? right? Uh, and I, I think if we have to be honest about that. Um, and, you know, a part of what I think this research can tell us is that sometimes, you know, there might be more going on to that perception of pointlessness than it actually being pointless, right? Maybe, maybe right. it is, right? We're, we're not really saying one way or another on that, but it's, complicating the story about whether or not the suffering that we see and experience in the world really is genuinely suffering, really is genuinely pointless, right? And and this is something that's, you know, uh, I guess more getting more personal for me, but, you know, there is suffering that I, I see in this world and it, by golly, it does seem pointless to me, right? It does. And I, I don't think that should be possible. I don't understand what the point could possibly be um, to the suffering. Uh, and I'm willing, given my my faith commitments, I'm willing to say that there's got to be some sort of point out there somewhere, but I don't see one, right? Well, from some of this research, um, 
it's been, I guess, somewhat therapeutic to myself in terms of just thinking, well, maybe I just have an admittedly really weird idiosyncratic view, right? Maybe, right? Maybe other people have um, uh, perceptions of suffering that are um, richer, uh, more uh, contextually informed. Uh, maybe I am a, a woefully um, individualistic, um, modern uh, analytic philosopher uh, who's who's not fully appreciated the connectedness uh, in the, the 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 rich relatedness um, of all things in the world, right? Maybe that maybe something like that's going on. Um, I don't know, um, and so maybe I, I from those sort of considerations, I shouldn't be too bothered by the fact that I see that the suffering that I see seems pointless to me. Maybe, um, but it's still, you know, it's not going to solve that problem. It doesn't make that problem go away. It does still seem pointless to me. The problem of evil is a, an old problem, right? It's an right. ancient problem. Yeah, uh, It's not new, uh, but um, it's really just in the past few decades that the problem of evil has become sort of the central problem for philosophy, for theists within philosophy of religion. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it's an interesting question to ask, but why is that? Like what happened to us um, in the most recent decades? You know, why does suffering seem so pointless now in such a way that seemingly maybe it didn't seem that way to many of our ancestors. If I'm totally honest with myself, I've lived a pretty charmed life, right? Um, I I am not nearly as acquainted with suffering uh, as many people in this world. And so, you know, why, why is it so vexing to me, but not vexing to other people? All right. Why is it so vexing to me, but not as vexing to my ancestors? I, I don't know, but that's part of what we're trying to figure out, I guess. Yeah, yeah. that's a, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's actual wisdom coming from a philosopher. <laughs> I like, uh, I like the existential personal turn that we took there. That was even more, it was kind of pastoral and more than just practical. So uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that insight. I felt that. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.